As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, may your scripture this day inspire us. May it nurture us as we seek to be your disciples. And may it equip us to follow you faithfully each day of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities, it consumes their oracle priests, and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Edmah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was five years old, my parents decided I should take violin lessons. This wasn't because of any natural music ability they detected in me, but because a friend recommended it. I started learning with a ruler glued to a cereal box and eventually graduated to playing a real violin and, after 10 years or so, to playing in my city's youth symphony. Although I enjoyed it, I almost always thought of playing the violin as a chore, something I was supposed to do because my parents thought it was good for me. It was also a significant source of conflict between me and my mother. She was the one with the unenviable task of reminding me to practice and of letting me know when something I was playing was out of tune or out of time. She was only trying to be helpful, of course, but let's just say it, it wasn't the kind of help I always appreciated. 
My mother drove and accompanied me to countless violin lessons and symphony rehearsals throughout my childhood and adolescence. But for the last couple of years in high school, I could drive myself to my lessons at a local college. One day, my mother handed me an envelope and asked me to drop it off at the business office before my lesson. I didn't think much of it, but as I walked up to the office, I opened the envelope to take out what was inside and give it to the person behind the counter. I pulled out a check that represented the cost of one semester's worth of lessons. When I saw the amount of the check, I stopped in my tracks. The truth was, I'd never really considered the fact that those lessons I mostly took for granted actually cost something. As much as any of the prophets in our Old Testament, the prophet Hosea offers us a glimpse of what it costs God to be the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of humanity. If the only part of this book we read was the 11th chapter we just heard, we might not know it, but the previous 10 chapters are filled with furious diatribes detailing the shortcomings of God's people. The people are graphically compared to an unfaithful spouse and an ungrateful child. And God sounds ready to visit upon them every bit of punishment they deserve. But here in chapter 11, the tone changes, and we get this incredible glimpse into God's own heart, a glimpse that reveals the very nature of God with this intimate metaphor of God as a loving, attentive parent who keeps drawing near and offering love and guidance to God's children despite the frequency with which they reject God's love and care. God keeps pouring out love, keeps investing in God's children, even when those children have no idea what it costs when they repeatedly reject God's ways. The mistakes of God's people are well documented throughout Hosea, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery— But worst of all, the people exhibit no faithfulness or loyalty. In spite of all that God has done for them, they keep turning away to follow the gods of materialism and militarism. And yet, in the face of the people's disobedience and lack of gratitude, God's love prevails. I taught them to walk God says, I took them up in my arms. I was to them that like those who lift infants to their cheeks, I bent down and fed them. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not come in wrath. This is not just a glimpse of the God of grace and forgiveness or of God the Creator. This is God, our loving parent who sets aside God's own needs and legitimate frustrations and instead chooses not just guidance and forgiveness, but unexpected, unearned tenderness. 
In my years as a pastor, I have had many people say to me, I just don't know what to do with the God of the Old Testament. In that part of the Bible, God just seems so violent and punitive. I understand why we might think that. There are terrible, disturbing, confusing texts in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testaments, actually. But in the Old Testament, there are also many texts we tend to overlook. Texts that reveal a God of unconditional love and forgiveness from the very beginning. This passage from Hosea reminds us that when God becomes human in Jesus to reveal the depth of God's love and the power of God's grace, this is not a new development. This is who God has been all along. A God who chooses love and grace instead of anger and punishment. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann points out, that what is so remarkable about this passage from Hosea is that in it, we get to witness God being self-reflective and even changing God's mind. He writes, we see God turn inward in a moment of reflection. We get to listen in to God's internal wrestling. Our religious traditions don't typically allow God to have any unresolved interior life because for this to be true opens up the possibility that God's heart could be changed. And we're not always so comfortable with that. We're more likely to think of God the way the familiar hymn describes, immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. We often imagine God as static, stoic, unchanging, all-knowing. But that isn't the God we meet here in Hosea, or for that matter, in the rest of the Bible. Here, in the midst of grief and anger and frustration, God pauses to reflect and to remember. This child God is ranting against is beloved. And so we overhear God ask these four probing questions, each of which begins with the words, How can I? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I destroy you? And the conclusion God comes to is, I can't. Not because God isn't capable of such wrath, but because that isn't who God is. My heart recoils, God says. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy. As Brueggemann reminds us, this is not the God of stringent orthodoxy who can be reduced to a syllogism. This is not the God of popular piety who is a best friend in a therapeutic culture. Rather, this is a God of deep and complex emotive honesty who violates all conventional God talk. If this is who God 
is. Perhaps we can take a cue from this passage and pause for a moment to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to be made in the image of this God? During that pause, the most important question we might ask next is a question of identity. Is this who we really are? This is a question I've heard a lot in recent days from friends and family and members of our congregation. It's a question that comes up when we encounter narratives of the past that are different from the ones we learned and have held dear since childhood. It's a question that comes up as we listen to the pain and anguish of those who have felt unfairly judged and misunderstood and mistreated, some to the point of death because of the color of their skin. It's a question that comes up as we consider what it meant to erect and defend monuments to those who fought to preserve a way of life that says some people are inherently worth more than others. This is a question worth spending some time with right now. Is this who we really are? In this moment of confusion and confession and consternation, as many of us seek to understand anew the history of our country and our churches and our families in the construction of unjust systems and structures built on a foundation of racial hierarchy, what a gift it is for us to witness that even God has such a moment as this. When God pauses in the midst of a fit of rage and frustration to reflect and to question, is this who I really am? And then God answers, no, it's not. So I won't act out of anger. I will not destroy. I will draw alongside my people with tender compassion and unconditional love, even and especially when they turn away from me. I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, in a section of that city not unlike the near West End neighborhood that our church is in. My siblings and I could walk to our local elementary school by ourselves and to the centrally located 7-Eleven where we would buy Slurpees and candy and to the small family-run grocery store where we could ask the clerk behind the counter to put our purchases on our parents' credit account, for which they would receive a bill at the end of the month in the mail. My family went to church every Sunday, a church very much like FPC, a church filled with earnest and curious and kind and faithful people, people who didn't just read the Bible, but who studied it people who prayed and cared for one another and their community. 
A few years ago, while visiting Roanoke for a symposium at that church, I heard the Reverend Bill Lee, a longtime pastor in a nearby Baptist church. After he talked about his 40-plus years serving black families in Roanoke's inner city, someone asked him if he had any book recommendations. He immediately said that anyone from Roanoke needed to read the book True Vine by Roanoke native Beth Macy. I ordered it right then and there on my smartphone, and when I got back to Cleveland, it was waiting for me. Reading that book introduced me to a whole different city than the one I grew up in, a place where people had once attended lynchings for entertainment, where policies had deliberately created segregated communities, and where black children could literally be kidnapped from their yard and sold to the circus. Reading that book forced me to pause and ask myself, what does it mean to grow up in a place and not understand what that place is like for someone very different from me? How was my experience influenced by race and education and socioeconomic status? All of these are variations on the question, is this who I really am? For me, reading that book and learning about the Roanoke I never knew as a child was one significant marker on my journey of seeking to better understand the reality of race in this country and how I have benefited from it, often because of realities I did not know or have to acknowledge. It was one marker on that journey, but it will not be the last. Because like all of us in this country, this coming to terms with our history is going to take a long time. And it is going to be hard work. Along the way, we are going to have moments of frustration and rage. We are going to get weary and worn. And we are probably going to say some stupid and possibly even offensive things without meaning to. Again and again on this journey, we will need to call on our identity as children of a living, loving God. A God who has the wisdom and patience and grace to pause, to remember who God is. A God of love, not hate. A God of mercy, not punishment. A God who gathers together God's children, all God's children, with tenderness and compassion. A God who keeps teaching and keeps revealing to us a vision of God's kingdom and who keeps inviting us to work to manifest that kingdom here and now. A God who does all this and who never counts the cost. This is the God in whose image we are made. A God who already loves us as much as God possibly can. 
When the feelings start to rise in us, feelings of disbelief and discomfort and anger and shame and fear and overwhelm, may we pause to remember who we are. We are God's beloved, sent into God's world to care for one another with the same compassion and tenderness with which God cares for each one of us. Amen.